Father, uh, we thank you uh, for Jesus. We thank you uh, for his grace. And I want to pray right now as we uh, get into your word that we would uh, hear and receive uh, what you want us to hear and receive. And uh, that I wouldn't be in the way of that at all. Distraction wouldn't be in the way of that at all. But instead, your spirit would just speak into this room and help us to learn what you want us to learn. Uh, we thank you again for Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. I don't feel like this is uh, groundbreaking news by any stretch of the imagination, but we as a nation are really divided from one another. Um, and uh, human nature has always caused us to be divided from one another. I don't want to act like this is like groundbreaking. He's like, oh, what? You know, it, it's, it's not that at all. Uh, we've always been divided from one another. I uh, took my family several years ago to the Abraham Lincoln Museum. And if you've ever been to that museum, there's an exhibit there with political cartoons uh, from during that, that time in our history about the president. And that exhibit is a reminder that this is not the first time we've been divided from one another. All right? it, it goes way back. I remember uh, my dad talking to me. My dad worked for General Motors in Lansing, Michigan. And I remember him talking to me about some labor disputes that took place. And he would talk about driving into work and people were pounding on his vehicle with baseball bats. While, while he was trying to go to work, and they were uh, protesting labor disputes and the Vietnam War and all of this stuff. Uh, like I said, it's not groundbreaking. We, we are divided from one another, but uh, we've been divided for a long time. We're divided politically. It's just a year ago that we went through a pretty contentious uh, uh, election. We're divided by pandemic response. Uh, and I, I think you have people that uh, like masks and don't like vaccine or don't like vaccine, and it's caused even more uh, division. And if you're anything like me, you've noticed just, I know it's a downer way to start a sermon, but just stick with me for a few minutes, but just a general sourness uh, in our community and, and our culture, more yelling in traffic, more arguing on social media, more hostile and discourteous treatment of workers in restaurants, less generosity, uh, it's easy to see how we got uh, to this spot. And if I think if I'm evalu evaluating, I've talked to you about this before, but I think one of the mistakes that we've made is that several years ago, and I'm not even sure how to evaluate when this happened, but we decided that everything was going to be political, that every single problem would be political. And the engine that drives politics, the way it, the, track, or the train moves down the track is divide and disagreement. And so when you make everything political, pandemics are political, relationships are political, every single thing is political, it is very easy to see uh, the station where the train is going to end up. It's going to end up in a place of divide and disunity and animosity and anger. It's easy uh, to see how we got to this point. Now we're going to be in Genesis 31. We're continuing uh, in our series right now. And what we've seen one of the lessons we can learn from Jacob is what we've seen in Jacob and in his relationships is that there's been a consistent storyline of divide, right? Jacob becomes uh, divided from his nuclear family over some inheritance. Now he's gone to Laban uh, to, to find a wife. He ended up marrying um, uh, sisters there and he's, he's there and now we're going to start to see this divide happen uh, with, with, uh, with Laban. And listen, this is not, like I said, it's nothing new. People have been uh, divided for, for centuries. And so Laban, or Jacob comes into this divide with Laban, and God says, it's time to return to the promised land. It's time for you to leave uh, Laban. And so Jacob leads, uh, leaves, and Jake, Laban pursues. And the story uh, starts out heading south in a hurry. 
Uh, but eventually things get righted, and that's really what the story's about. So let's start in verse 22. On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. So God tells Jacob, get out of here, he flees. Laban hears about it. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came uh, to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, I love this. I love that God, from the very beginning, he intervenes uh, with Jacob and with, with Laban, and he intervenes to protect Jacob. Jacob is the one through whom God's promises are going to be fulfilled. And the very first thing he says is, don't say anything. When you catch up to Jacob, don't say anything, good or bad. Seems like a weird thing to say, right? God is a God of reconciliation and God is a God of peace. And I would understand if he came to Laban and said, hey, when you, when you catch up to Jacob, I totally understand this. When you catch up to Jacob, don't say anything stupid. Laban, you're, you're very easy to fall into that trap. So don't say anything stupid. Don't say anything bad. Don't say anything destructive. Laban, don't say anything bad. I would totally understand that. But to not say anything good don't say anything good or bad. Don't, don't say anything good. I, I think it describes the headspace that Laban and Jacob are in, at this point in the story, where God's advice to Laban is say, hey, when you catch up to Jacob, here's my advice. Don't say anything. Period. The end. Because even in saying something good, it's not going to end up in a good place. Have you ever had someone say something to you that they intended for good? but you didn't receive it as good? I, I sure have. Have you ever had someone that they said something good in order to set up something bad? Right? It starts with, hey, you're a really good mom, but you're a really good leader, but you're a really good sibling, but you, hey, you're a really, really great worker, but, and listen, sometimes things need to be phrased that way. There's that old business model of you set them up with the good to bring them down with the bad, you know, that sort of thing. Sometimes things need to be phrased that way. But other times, most of the time, it feels like it would be better to have said nothing at all. And you've got to know when God is leading you to be quiet and when God is calling you to speak. It can be really tricky and hard. But sometimes I think when we evaluate the last two years of pandemic in this country, sometimes I think it would be better if millions of people learn this lesson from God. Don't say anything good or bad. Say nothing at all, as a matter of fact. Keep your mouth shut. I feel like I would avoid a lot of trouble in my life if I followed this advice. I'm going to say something, but it's going to be really good. No, don't, don't say anything at all. No, but I want to say this. That's the point. Don't say anything at all, good or bad. I need to say it. That, that's, again, the point, Steve. You really need to say it. It would be better to not say anything at all, good or bad. And so Laban receives this wonderful advice from his God, and he immediately disregards it. All right, so uh, verse 25 just like social media encourages all of us to do. God is speaking to us, don't say anything at all, good or bad. It's like, I'm gonna go tweet about this on social media. Right now. No. All right. So all right. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him 
And Laban and his relatives camped there too. <laughs> Verse 26. Then Laban said it to Jacob. We just had this conversation. All right, what have you done? You've deceived me. You've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of timbrels and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren. It's starting to feel like Christmas, doesn't it, right? <laughs> with your family, you know how it goes. Right? Why did you leave in the middle of the You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you, but last night, the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. He knows exactly what God said. <laughs> this boy's doing his own thing, right? But now you've gone off because you long to return to your father's household, but why did you steal my gods? All right, so Laban catches Jacob, promptly disregards God's advice to not say anything at all. And I want you to notice when he does speak, I want you to notice how this conflict begins to escalate because the very first thing he does is he portrays Jacob in the worst possible light. And it's often what happens in a conflict, isn't it? When we're articulating our point of view, the first thing we do is we portray the person that we're talking about or to. We portray them in the worst possible light. Like those Republicans, always. Those Democrats, always. Those centrists, they won't even pick a side, right? Those anti-vaxxers, those pro-vaxxers, and on and on it goes. And there's two big accusations Laban has for Jacob. The first is the accusation of deceit, that Jacob had carried off his daughters like captives of war, not exactly what happened, but the second accusation is the accusation of thievery, that Jacob had stolen these household gods. And again, as the story unfolds, you'll see it didn't exactly happen uh, that, way, that way as well. So he's portraying Laban in the worst possible light. And at the same time, you notice he's portraying himself in the best possible light, right? Excuse me, Laban's portraying himself in the best possible light. He paints this improvable picture of himself that had Jacob come to him and just said that he was going to leave, here's Laban's theory, I would have thrown you a party with timbrels, whatever, all right, music and joy and singing, and I would have kissed my grandchildren and my daughters goodbye, and we would have sing Kumbaya by the fire, we would have s'mores and a pig roast, and it would have been beautiful. And the only thing I would say about it is we've been studying Laban for multiple weeks. Does that sound like Laban to you? Right? Does that sound like something Laban would have done? That Jacob comes to him and says, hey, we're thinking about leaving? Well, it's party time. Right? It's party time. Bring out the timbrel um, and the food, and we're going to have a, a, a really good time. And truth be told, you got to be careful about psychoanalyzing dead people. I know. But I think Laban is most concerned about these household gods that have gone missing. I think there was some value there. He wanted them back. He believes that Jacob has stolen them. And he is, uh, a lot of this conflict is about these household gods. And I wonder how many times the conflict in our life is about something we don't even realize what it's about. We think it's about one thing, but it's really about maybe a little G God that we're worshiping, a thing 
or a relationship or money, and we don't even realize what it's about. The story continues. Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. I wasn't anticipating a party. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me, and if so, take it. Now here's a little, now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So now Jacob gets his turn to talk. And he portrays Laban in the worst possible light. And again, it's not a provable accusation. It's an assumption. He says, I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. And it may possibly be a legitimate concern. As a matter of fact, as the story unfolds, you see this kind of weird attitude toward Rachel and the kids. The first one, it comes from Laban, where he is constantly referring to them as his. And now Jacob is also referring to them as his. And so he might have a legitimate concern here that a fight was going to break out. But then he paints himself in the victim role. There's no apology for his character defects or for any sins that he may have committed in the conflict. What he says was, you need to understand, I was afraid of you. I was afraid because we both know, Laban, we both know how you are. And let me say, there are times in this world, a lot of times, when one person is the victim of another person's sin. And they might feel like Jacob did in this story. They may feel like they have to leave abruptly or even overnight without announcement just to be safe. And that happens and it's necessary and it's good for people to seize back control and to get in a more healthy, stable, and safe environment. I really am not sure that's what's happening in this story though. I think what was happening in this story that we just read is much more common. Jacob and Laban say, who's at fault, Laban or Jacob? Yes. Yes. They're both at fault in different ways. They both have, I'm sure, done things that they regret. Surely they both said things. They're both communicative, right? I'm sure they both said things that they regret. They both assumed the worst in one another and the best about themselves. And I think that this is not a great model for us to move forward. I'm gonna portray you in the worst way. I'm gonna portray myself in the best way. I'm gonna adopt the role of victim and I'm gonna make myself feel and seem better than maybe I actually um, and then he makes a significant mistake and he offers the life of the person who stole the household gods, not knowing it's his wife, not, not realizing that at all. This person that he loves has actually stolen them and the story goes on. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he found nothing. And he came out of Leah's tent. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Here's, you gotta read the Bible. Rachel said to her father, don't be angry, my Lord. I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. Unbelievable, right? And so he searched but he could not find the household gods. Jacob was angry and took Laban to task. What is my crime, he asked Laban. Have I wronged you that you hunt me down? Now you have searched through all my goods, but uh, what, what have you found that belongs to your household? Put it here in front of your relatives and mine and let them judge between the two of them. And look at what he says now. I've been with you for 20 years. Your sheep and your goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten rams from your flocks. 
I did not bring you animals uh, torn by wild beasts. I bore the loss myself. And you demanded payment from me for whatever was stolen day or night. This is my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime, the cold at night, the sheep fled from my eyes. I was like this for 20 years. I was in your household. I worked for you 14 for your two daughters and six for your flocks. And you have charged me wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and and the father of Isaac, had not been with me, you surely would have sent me away empty-handed, but God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands, and last night, he rebuked you. Now, this is where I feel like the story starts to shift just a little bit, and I think you start to get some actual honest talk from both Jacob and Laban. Jacob makes the case now. He said, listen, I have worked for you for 20 years. I have endured financial loss working for you, and God has blessed me, not you. If it had been up to Laban, he would have sent Jacob away a long time ago. And so you start to finally get to the heart of the matter a little bit, not feeling appreciated, feeling mistreated, kind of abused, neglected, uh, like the only reason he's prospered is God, that Laban has actually not been that good to him. And you start to hear, to me anyway, a little bit of heart in Jacob's words that we're done portraying you in the worst possible way and myself in the best possible way. And we're starting to get to the meat of actually what's going on here and how he feels toward Laban. And then Laban speaks. Laban answered Jacob, the women are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Eh, No, that's not it. Yeah, what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children that that, uh, they have born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, let's, uh, and let it serve as a witness between us. So now you're starting to get Laban's perspective, that Rachel and Leah are his daughters, the flocks are his, they're not, he's wrong about that. Um, the flocks are Jacob's, and Laban affirms that in the text. He says, these flocks are mine, but I have no recourse. Right? I have no way to move forward, and he knows he's wrong about it, but he's sharing how he feels in the situation, and he obviously resents how wealthy Jacob has become working for him. There's been a shift in the balance of power. Laban was the powerful one when Jacob arrives. Now Jacob is leaving, and he's the powerful, influential, wealthy one. And that imbalance of power has created tension. And I think that this story, as I read it, I think this story is about, in any conflict, trying to get to the bottom of what's really going on. Because when we get to the bottom of what's really going on, it leads to understanding, which leads to grace. And the way you do that with the other person, say, man, I want to get to the bottom of what's going on with you. We've been in this conflict. I want to know what's really going on. And the way that you do that is by listening. By really listening to their perspective. Now, you may not agree with their perspective. I'm sure Jacob and Laban did not agree with one another. You most likely won't agree with their perspective. But by listening, I think you can gain understanding. I think you can begin to gain understanding. And by gaining understanding, you can begin to walk in grace. But it only happens when we really value getting to the bottom of it and really listening to the perspective of the other person. It's a really helpful thing. I was thinking about this story in relation to what our country has been going through. And I was thinking about how divided we have become on pandemic response. And I was thinking about two separate friends that I have that really don't know each other at all. And one friend has a lung condition 
And COVID would have been really, really threatening for him with this lung condition. condition. And so he always, on his social media accounts, he has always advocated really hard for masks and vaccination and all that stuff. And I can promise you, if I brought him up on this stage and I had him share his story about his lung condition and his fear about COVID, you know what you would say? The same thing that I would say, the, the, thing, the same thing I have said. You would hear his story and you would say, I get it. I get your perspective. I get where you're coming from. I get why you would be afraid of this virus given the condition that you have. I have another friend, like I said, they don't know each other at all whose child got really, really sick several years ago after, receiving, after having an adverse reaction to a different vaccine, not the COVID vaccine. And what that did in this friend is it created some vaccine hesitancy in his family and even opposition. And I can promise you, if he came up here this morning and he shared his story about being with his child in the hospital and how they really know it was an adverse reaction to that particular vaccine years and years ago, you would hear his story and you know what you would say? I get it. I get it. I think we would do better in our nation and in our relationships if we would listen. Social media has made us um, all speakers. That speaking and making our point has become really popular and making it as loud as we can is really, really important in this culture. But here's what James says. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And I'm telling you, if we could just hear each other's stories a little bit better, it would lead to understanding. And understanding would lead to grace. And I can't promise you that hearing the person's story, like Jacob and Laban are an example of this, I, I, can, I can't promise that hearing the other person's story, you would say, I agree I can't promise that hearing the other story like, oh, you're right and I'm wrong. It's probably, that's probably not going to happen. You have your perspective just like they have, they have their perspective. But what will happen when we really listen to each other's stories is we might find ourselves having some understanding and some grace and say, well, I don't agree. I get it. I get your perspective. I, I, I get where you're coming from. I get how maybe on the journey that you've been, you've arrived at your position. I get it. I don't agree, but I get it. And I think when it comes to getting to the bottom with them, it's listening. When it comes to getting to the bottom with me, because this is important too, it's self-evaluation. Right? And we're really bad at this in this country of just slowing down enough um, to be able to evaluate what is going on in our heart, in our heart and in our mind. But I think it's worth thinking about. Why am I so angry about this? Why have I allowed this relationship to blow up? Why, why are things so tense? What is going on with me that I have no patience for this particular individual right now? It's worth thinking about. What is really going on with me? It's really easy and fun to think about what's going on with them. We can develop a lot of theories that way, right? Now, oh, I know what's going on with them. They're a jerk. For whatever reason, God created them to be a jerk. They're always going to be a jerk, though they've always been a jerk, and that, that's what's going on with them, right? 
It is a lot harder, but valuable, to slow down, look at a conflict, and say, what is going on with me in this situation? Let me give you a few things to think about. Are my accusations fair? We see that with both Laban and Jacob. They have made accusations that us kind of knowing the whole story, they are not fair, they are not right, they are not just, and it's worth asking. In terms of my accusation, am I being fair? Am I accepting assumption as fact? Right? You know how many times I've been in a conflict with somebody over the years, and at the end of the day, much of my anger and frustration is not built on fact at all. It's based on assumption. Sometimes, you might not want me to be your pastor anymore after I share this, but sometimes I develop a whole conversation and then hold them accountable for the conversation I had in my mind. How screwed up is that? Oh, they're going to say, I know they're going to say this. Then I'm all mad at them. They never said that. I said it for them. Right? So am I accepting assumption as fact? Am I seeing and accepting my role? Another important thing, everyone plays a role in a conflict. Uh, am Am I seeing and accepting the role that I've played? And lastly, am I walking in grace in the relationship? So Satan at different times in the Bible, Satan at different times is called the great accuser. He loves to accuse God's children. God is called the great grace giver. We want to be like our father in this area, not our enemy. So we want to be grace givers, not great accusers. And so am I walking in grace? Am I showing grace to people that need it? Because I have been the recipient of it so many times. Let's conclude the story here. So Jacob took a stone and set up up as a pillar. And he said to his relatives, gather some stones So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar (laughs) Sahadutha, and Jacob called it Galid. You got all right. Let's go with Galid. All right. So, um, not that Jagar Sahadutha is not awesome, but all right. Laban said, "This heap is a witness between me and you today. This is why it's called Galid." It was also called Mizpah because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives beside my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is my witness between you and me. I will track you down. I I am not afraid to do prison ministry from the inside. All right, so Laban also said to Jacob, here is this heap. Here is this pillar I have set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you and that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. I'm drawing a line, right? Sometimes this is what you gotta do in a conflict, right? There's a line, right? This is what we do with our kids, right? Sam, you're on this side. Lila, there's an invisible wall, right? Nobody's passing the wall, all right? And they pass the wall, right? So um, Jacob took an oath in the name of the father of, uh, in, the, in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. 
After they had eaten, they spent the night there. And early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. All right? Here's what I want you to see, because the New Testament's going to talk about this. I'll show it to you in a minute. They've had this conflict. They've navigated it really messily. And that's okay because it's always messy. And then they worship and offer sacrifice. Believe it or not, this is actually the same order that the New Testament would put this type of thing in. It's like before you offer the sacrifice, before you offer the worship, engage in reconciliation. Let me show you what Jesus says, right? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift, all right? So you can kind of see the order of things here, right? That first be reconciled and then sacrifice and worship. Reconciliation first to the best of your ability. It's not always possible, but to the best of your ability, reconcile first, sacrifice and worship second. And I think there are many reasons the Bible describes it this way. One, reconciliation honors God in a really unique way. Right? It's easy to see how sacrifice and worship honors God. Like, man, I just loved listening to you guys sing this morning from, from up front, um, listening to you sing. It's easy to see how we're honoring God in that moment, that we're lifting his name high, we're singing praises to him. It is easy to see. But a reconciled relationship that comes to peace, it honors him in a way that is unique from that. That people are able to see the gospel you proclaim with your lips in your relationships, and that is a beautiful and amazing thing. So people, you can articulate with your lips and with your songs and with your preaching and with your uh, talking, you can articulate the gospel a hundred different ways, but there is something powerful about saying, I have received grace, I am going to show grace. There's something really powerful about that. Also, God wants our worship and our lives to be aligned. There are repeated scriptures about this. So to sing about grace in this room and to refuse to show grace in the world demonstrates a lack of alignment. And so God wants our lives to be aligned. And so he says, man, before you offer the sacrifice, before you engage in the worship, let's get alignment to the best of our ability. And like I said, it's a two-way, what, two to tango, right? Yeah, yeah, all right. It's a two-way street. And so it's not always possible, but to the best of our ability, we try to bring alignment in and we trust in God's grace for the rest. I think reconciliation enhances our worship. That we have experienced in a practical way what God sent his son to do in a theological way. Right? So here's what I mean by that. That when you come in here and you hear me teach about the gospel, right? hopefully it's good and it moves you and you're like, man... I am forgiven. I have received grace. God loves me so much that he sent his one and only son to die for me. And, and hopefully that moves you in a theological way. But there's something about experiencing it in a practical way. To look somebody in the eye and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I'm showing grace to you. As far as it depends on me, we are living at peace with one another. And I promise you, the Sunday after that happens, you will come into this room and you will proclaim God's grace in a way you've never proclaimed it before. Because reconciliation enhances our worship. 
And so Jacob and Laban, in a weird way, they set an example for us in this, that they do the messy work of kind of coming back together. They draw a, a line of peace, and it's not perfect. You know, it, it feels very childish at times, doesn't it? Like, don't cross the line. I forgive you, but don't cross the line. <laughs> right? Right? It feels very childish, but they, they've done the messy work. They're like, dude, I won't cross the line. We're, we're cool, right? So they, they, they've done the messy work, and then they've gathered together, and they built this heap, this altar, this sacrifice to God, and there's something really beautiful about it. So is there work we need to do? Probably a lot of times there is. Is there work we need to do to send an email or write a letter or uh, send a messenger message, a private messenger uh, message, whatever the case may be, to begin to do some reconciliation work? And I promise you, your worship will be enhanced, your worship will be changed, and you will experience God's grace in a way you've never experienced it before. It's messy. It's messy. It's not perfect in any sense of the word. No relationship is, I, I've never heard this story. I forgive you, right? I forgive you. Let's hug it out, right? That, that's most of the time it's like, dude, do not cross this line, right? Or, or don't, don't, don't cross this line or, or don't, you know, if you mistreat a member of my family, I will hunt you down, right? It's, most of the time it's that, it's like, well, that doesn't sound super graceful. So can we maybe phrase that a different way, right? And it's doing the messy hard work of arriving to a place where you both can live at. It is hard. It is messy. It is the gospel. It is proclaiming practically what we all in this room believe theologically. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You believe that, and so do I. But it's not just for me. And it's not just for you. It's for the person you're in conflict with. It's for the person that you don't like. It's for the other party that you just think, I cannot believe they believe, and all that stuff that we've fallen into in this country, that God's grace is for them. And so we want to figure out how to do a messy the messy work of re reconciliation and just enhance our worship and take it to the next level and experience God's grace in a totally unique way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. May what we believe theologically change what we do practically. And so theologically, I believe you are a grace giver. Practically, never ever let me be a great accuser. Practically, I know that you love me. Theologically, I know that you love me. Practically, never ever let me walk in hate. Theologically, I know you forgive me practically never ever let me leave this room and refuse to forgive someone after everything you've forgiven me. May my theology and my practice align. And may what I believe be demonstrated in every relationship I have. I know that um, there's probably a, a hundred circumstances in this room that I can't address each one. And there's messiness surrounding this and pain, and hardship, and difficulty, may remember that you are a grace giver. 
for them, but you're also a grace giver for me and for us. And so when we struggle and when we find it hard and when we're, the conversation isn't easy to come and we don't know what to do in our particular difficult situation, may we receive your grace for us, ourselves as well. But right now, as we get ready to enter into communion, I just want to pray for alignment. That Lord, as we remember the death of your son, any inconsistency in me and in us, would you bring it to our hearts right now? Anything that we would say we believe in this room, but we don't believe it Monday through Saturday in the way that we act, would you bring that lack of alignment into our hearts right now? And in this moment of communion, would we repent and be ready to, to do it a different way, the way that you call us to do? It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're going to receive a communion right now, a celebration of his grace. And uh, I just want to pray right now um, that, uh, as I prayed earlier, I should say that uh, there would just be alignment with what this moment represents, his grace and how we live. And so right now we're going to just spend some time with our Lord. The Holy Spirit is in this place. And may he just kind of poke around where he wants to poke around in our individual lives. And may we be a people that live out grace. And haven't just received it, although we have, but a people that live out grace. His body given for us. His blood poured out. Lord, as we receive the bread that represents your body and the juice that represents your blood, may our theology be our practice. We are so moved by your grace. We are so moved by your love. We are so moved by the gospel. May it shake every area of our life, including our politics and our relationships and our families. And I know as I was preaching, probably every single person in this room has either a, a past moment or a present one that's on their mind. And my prayer is that the gospel would invade those situations and that we would be moved by your love and your grace and your care. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We are uh, gonna start to see uh, the story shift a little bit um, as uh, Jacob experience, experiences some peace in this relationship and we're gonna see what weeks ago would have, I think, seemed impossible. Um, we're gonna see Jacob and Esau um, come to a peaceful place as well. And uh, if uh, whatever the situation is that comes up in your mind, you're like, oh, it's impossible for God to, to work in that. If you've been a part of this series, you know, you know what Jacob did. We all know what Jacob did, right? You, you, know, you know what he did and, and what he did against his family. And for God to bring some peace is absolutely moving to me. Um, and it, it's encouraging. And so we're gonna start to see that transition um, next week before... Jacob can really be fully humbled to, uh, uh, to be able to do it. He's going to 
you know, have to have a little hip issue with God. So they're going to wrestle first, and then God's going to send him on his way. So I uh, can pray you continue to join us uh, for this series. Uh, I'm enjoying uh, the study of Jacob. So go ahead and stand. Let's close with one last song, and uh, you all have a great week ahead of you.